Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organisation sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others and the planet. I'm your host, Brad Jennings, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. Welcome to episode 18 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. I'm so looking forward to my conversation today. The purpose of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast is sharing knowledge and insights to create a better future. No one exudes this more than Gwendolyn Galsworth. Her life has been amazing. She has worked with some of the most amazing leaders in Enterprise Excellence, written many award-winning books on visual workplace, and dedicated herself to helping others improve and grow. Let's get into the episode. Gwendolyn, thank you so much for joining us today. It's entirely my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm honored. Thanks, Gwendolyn. Now, Gwendolyn, I've heard, I heard you began your career teaching Latin. <laughs> I did. I did. And your question is? Where did that, what insights did you gain from teaching Latin that evolved yourself <laughs> through to all things enterprise excellence and visual workplace? You know, when I started teaching Latin, I, I taught Latin because I, I had um, quite a closeted childhood. My father is from Switzerland, my mother from Russia. They, we, were, we were not a, a bourgeois family. Uh, my father went to the Russian Revolution, literally, as a young journalist. He was like 15, and he traveled from Switzerland actually he was living in Italy at the time, where there was a very strong anti-fascist movement in Italy. And he went to this event that was about the liberation of people, or so it, th so it was thought at the time. It was not evil. It was a revolution in consciousness. That is the way the oppressed people, mostly in Europe because of the hierarchy of... Um, aristocracy and everybody else, uh, there was a lot of perceived and experienced oppression, a lot of uh, ceilings. So my father went to the Russian Revolution. He learned Russian on the way. He was really a, a very gifted in languages. And um, anyway, his brother got blown up at, at the printing, at a printing press, printing anti-fascist literature, this is when he came back from Russia, and he hopped the next boat as a stowaway to the United States. He was a survivalist. He said, I'm out of here. You know, they're blowing up people. They just blew up my brother. I'm next. I don't want this as my life. I want to go to America, which is, of course, was the haven of capitalism. It was the birthplace of capitalism. But he didn't think about that. He just wanted to escape. And anyway, my mother and father met, I came along, and there's a whole nother story behind that, which we'll do, if we do five shows, I'll tell you about it on a sixth show, because it's much, much more complicated than that. And he learned to be a dishwasher. He learned the language of English, which to the day that he died, he spoke better than I ever will. It was a very literate English, and he learned it from Life magazine. And he said, I would wash dishes during the day. And at night I would come home and I would copy. I had one copy of Life magazine and I would just copy out the words. 
And that's what I did every night. I didn't know what they meant. I just kept writing the words over and over and over again. And I learned the language. Well, he was promoted to a salad boy, and then he learned how to make desserts. And he made his mark as a top chef, as a dessert maker. And he was the head dessert chef for the International 400, housed in New York City. He came in, by the way, New Orleans, or, you know, you just go into New Orleans, you're right there on the sea, and then you're in the United States. Anyway, he was the top chef, chef there, and uh, he burned his heart out, and he had a heart attack when he was like 49, and... Oh, well, that's young. Yeah, it was very young. Uh, but he was an angry person and a loud person and a demanding person and a dominant European person who really thought he was king of the world because he had a great mind. And uh, he ended up staying home and my mother supported the family. She became a waitress and worked very, very hard. And then she became, she went up the, the ladder and she became a bartender. I'm getting to your answer, but I've got to give you a little bit of background. Definitely, she was so proud, but she didn't drink. So she could never taste what she made because she didn't drink at all. So she followed the formula. She had big dreams. My father stayed home and he, he raised us, me and my brother. And he filled our heads with Marxist thought. You know, I mean, he was talking about the evils of capitalism and he was talking about the repercussions of the Industrial Revolution, you know, and I was like 12 or, 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 or younger at the time. Anyway, he's there. And at some point I'm in high school and people around me are talking about a thing called college. I never even heard of the word college. And I went home and I said, Pop, people around me are talking about going to college in September. Uh, should I go to college? He said, yes. Well, they're talking about studying things. What should I study? He said, be a Latin teacher, because I had taken four years of Latin. I said, okay. That was it. Wow. <laughs> Connected that's, into that's Latin. Big... <laughs> but what about, what a backstory. Like, your father saw one of the most... Yes crazy revolutions, which we yes. know a lot of the backstory, escaped, yes. it sounds like, by the skin of his teeth. Yes. It and was dramatic. But it must yes. have certainly, because we, you and I, we, we know the backstory of Gwendolyn Kellsworth. You know, you've helped so much in relation to businesses and, and economic gains as well as human gains. But mm -hmm. that, that education was a lot about the human side of things from your father. I, and when we get to that fifth or sixth show... I will tell you, I'm not going to tell you now, about 12 years ago, I discovered he wasn't my father. So I had attributed all of his characteristics to me, but he wasn't my genetic father. Ah, anyway, Gwendolyn. what happened? Yes. That's, that's, we're just setting the scene of um, interest for the upcoming episodes. <laughs> yes. And, you know, philosophically, there's a lot to be said about our parents, things that they kept from us things they wanted to teach us to be better human beings. They didn't, most of them, want to teach us how to be them because, of course, they rejected most of their experiences the way we do. And they were harsh. 
we're having a taste of this now, if I can digress on my digression, we're having a taste of what hard means now. But if you look at Ken Burns, uh, the Roosevelt's, and really understand what the depression did to this country and to the mindset, you get a, f you get a flavor of where hard can become really hard and change us, you know, just rearrange our molecules and fill us with fear that we have to live with. So it's, I came in with a certain package. My father did nothing to relieve me of that package. He just hammered it, you know, I was like stuffed like a Christmas turkey with, I would say it's probably much, I'm much further down the list of things we should be talking about, but I was inspired by both my mother and my father's strength of spirit, although I couldn't have artic articulated it, but uh, they had tremendous internal strength, and I find when I look at my career that I've demonstrated that without even knowing that it was that it was a characteristic. It just was kind of my nature to be a fairly dramatic, <laughs> fairly dramatic, um, pretty intense person. So what happened is that I, I became a Latin teacher and only years later, you know, like maybe 10 years ago, I realized, my God, I was, I was becoming a linguist then. And I wanted to go on to graduate school and be a linguist. But instead, I got attracted to the New York City scene and being an actor. Somebody gave me a compliment once when I did some oral interpretation for a final exam when I was in college learning to be a Latin teacher. And I thought, wow, that guy thinks I'm good. He said, I should go to New York. I think I'll go to New York. <laughs> so I did. I taught for a year and then I went to New York. And what happened to me there is I got involved in theater. Now, what on earth could be the connection? Well, the connection is that it has to do with the stratum of who we are on the inside and what we express when we're given an opportunity to flow, to simply flow. I, I wondered why I was so taken by the theater when I had, there was so much competition and there were people from wealthy and well-established theatrical families who were competing for the same job, the same audition as I was, and they would always get it because they had the inside track and nobody knew me. I left after 10 years. And then this happened and this happened and this happened. And I think you may know, I used Norman Bodek's typewriter, his computer. It was a Wang computer, <laughs> long since lost in history to write my dissertation. And I went for my doctorate because I didn't have anything better to do. So there wasn't a shape. There wasn't a open the door and become a visual workplace person. There was just following my life. Yeah. I find that so interesting. So I'll just stop there with the, the story. The paths that you, the paths that you take and how they evolve. But I understand during that education and that PhD, you did education, but you also brought in their statistics. 
What do you think drove you to bring in statistics and actually start to bring in that, that side of thing? Uh, I hated statistics. I didn't do it out of love. I did it because I was told I needed to understand statistics in order to do valid research. My interest was to investigate the power structures of the socio-political scene. I'm an East Coaster, so we, that was in our face all the time, this struggle. And, you know, this minute right now is when I just made the connection with what my father was doing in, in, in Russia, you know, the socio-political revolution, economic revolution as well. But I was always interested in how people made or didn't make powerful choices in their life when they had a choice. Not a con constructed choice of making it happen, but what was the, what brought them into a richer context, a richer relationship with themselves, and what took them away from it? How was that choice made? And that's what I did my dissertation on, and I needed statistics, but it was hard for me. I think I got a B, and I really paid to get that B. Uh, I'm not a natural mathematician. My language skills do not extend into the language of mathematics. I hope that's enough of an answer. But getting, getting a B for something that is not naturally a skill of yours, you must have worked hard. You must have formed some new habits on that. I did work hard. Um, the habit that I formed this will become redundant, is the habit of keep going, of just keep going. Do what's in front of me, do that, and then do the next thing. And if there wasn't anything happening, imagine the next thing and then do that. That's, a, that's the shorthand for it. Yeah, you're really focused on getting done what you commit to, delivering on your commitments. I am focused on delivering on my vision, yeah, not my that. commitments. Yeah, you, I, you, yeah, go ahead, please. Your vision for the future that you have. Yeah, it's an evolving vision. I feel um, it's a feeling. It's a feeling. When I write my books, I write them to my satisfaction, and then I hand them over to my editor, Aurelia Navarro, and she says, good, good, nah, you went off the track there, fix this, da, 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 da. I just write to my satisfaction. So I think, you know, I, I really am a little bit uncomfortable uh, um, talking about myself quite so introspectively because these are, they're not, it's not that they're private thoughts. It's just that they're not that interesting <laughs> for anybody else but me. But I'm very, very interested in my internal life. I'm yeah. very interested in what happens when I get quiet. And, you know, I've been meditating for decades. And for me, the purpose of meditation is twofold. One is to connect to a higher power because that's so lovely and so nourishing and so um, brings beauty into my life. But the other is to what happens in the quiet? Who is Gwendolyn when things get quiet? So it's to quiet all of the, the noise, the fear, the disappointments, you know, all of that, and just say, okay, I'm still now. What, what, what's there? Yeah, 
What's those deeper thoughts? What's that deeper vision? Where am I going? What is that vision? What is that vision? I, I second that. I love meditation myself and find exactly the same outcome you mentioned. Huh. Well, I'll tell you, if I could build on that, Brad, um, that somehow, even though it was unknowing, has been the beacon, or as I reflect in hindsight, my work in visuality is to bring uh, a condition that allows for that. And I, I, I work, I, my main beginning work was with operators. How do I give the operator an opportunity to have an internal life and to be interested on the inside? You know, truly to be interested, and we say interested in my creativity, but it really, it, it, it so can I pursue this a little bit? I'd like to. Definitely, kind of, Gwendolyn, please. All right. So it was very easy in the 1980s to get work working with operators because nobody knew what they were doing. They just knew it was an opportunity because the Japanese had said, you know, you're missing this big, big piece. And they fumbled and uh, failed. And they fumbled and succeeded a little. Well, I fumbled and I, and I said, I just got to figure this out. And I fumbled teaching 5S to operators. So I spent like 10, 15 years working with operators. Then I moved on to executives and moved on to supervisors and managers. And I discovered what I discovered, what I had discovered with operators held true for them too. And what I discovered with operators is that setting aside all the companies that have been so successful with 5S, there were many, many, many that not only failed, but got into the habit of a very low level achievement as being 5S, which is the neat and clean piece. But because of some kind of internal sensitivity I have to flow, what I mentioned before, I could see when I was pushing and I could feel when they were pulling and they didn't pull very much from me. They responded because I was in a temporary authority figure, a, a position of authority. And because the work was so plain, you know, if you want me to clean it up, okay, get off my case. I'll clean it up. I'll make it neat. And I thought, oh man, this is just as boring as it looks. This is just dreary and they're being obedient. And I have an allergy to obedience. I have that in my, all of my relationships. I suppose the flip side of obedience is authenticity. But to become, to, to be authentic, you need to be in a condition that wants that authenticity, that doesn't block it, reject it, judge it, but does something like say, tell me more. You know, just yeah. walk right down the middle. I'm not saying I love what you're saying, but I'm saying tell me more because, you know, that's you. And how do, so how do we bring, and this was not a conscious, this is reflection. When I look at my work and I say, what are the common threads? When I started to transition my work over to executive leadership, what parts of my experience with operators hold true for executive leaders. Well, it's 
on a certain order of magnitude, it's identical. And that is people seek flow in their work. They seek the experience of flowing out and pulling in. You know, it's the breath. Exhale, inhale, which is more important. This is your culture. It's breathing in and out. And in, it's so natural. Flow is so natural. And what would it be like if a company set as its goal, we're going to create flow, not just in our product scheduling, not just in our processes, but flow is an actually a high outcome for us culturally. So that became very interesting to me. And what I realized by doing it and succeeding a little bit, but failing a lot, and then succeeding a little more and failing slightly less, you know, this kind of shaping procedure, which for someone like me, I have a researcher's mind. I am curious and I am stimulated by what I discover. It doesn't become a black or a white, a plus or a minus. It's just, oh, that's another data point. Oh, tell me more. Oh, and this, let me try this out. Does this, does this change things? Getting back to your question about statistics, statistics is a lens for looking and for interpreting. It's really an interpretive tool. It's not used that way. It's used in judgment, not interpretation. But the research part of my work has completely kept me alive to it. And it's what has brought me into vision and not just deployment. Deployment is what I do. I'm probably one of the best implementers that I know. My implementation skills are superior to what I know about visuality. And I'm known as, you know, an expert in visuality. But I think it's because of that, hmm, this isn't a, a wall, it's a door. Let's see if we can get this door open. So that research um, bias has served me very, very well. And you can see how research and flow move together because the flow brings you what's next. So I really love that. And what I noticed is that in order that I couldn't even think about bringing operators into a high level of creativity until I first gave them control. They couldn't, they didn't trust me. Some of them didn't even like me. I had grievances filed against me in one shop. She called me a human being. Yeah. Oh, that was one of the grievances. She called me a human being. <laughs> well, I probably, he didn't like my tone. Maybe I put a question mark behind it. And what I, what, and, and what I saw with 5S is that 5S did not give the operator any outcome. The only outcome that was asked for was compliance. And the only reward it gave was you have complied. Thank you. Here's your five point scale uh, score. You got five out of five again, fifth year in a row, every week, five out of five. But there wasn't any way for the operators to actually enter 
into the part of 5S that never worked in the United States. And that's the one called labels and lines. Labels and lines. Put the lines on the floor, put the label in place because it was being used for compliance. And I said, I had been to, to Japan three or four times. It took study missions there. And I saw this, this Baroque visuality that was really functional and, and was part of what I call the living landscape of work. It wasn't. They did 5S for compliance, but they did a different process, a translation process. And I began to investigate what's going on here. And that's when the door began to open. Please keep going, Gwen, because I'm keen to understand a bit on how. We're hearing the difference. How, how did you see them going about it? What was that difference? You mean the Japanese? How did they go about yes. it? Yes, they what was that do... difference you saw between, and how did they achieve that difference between what you All saw right. in America with the more, you know, compliance versus the Japanese? Yes. I guess I, I need to really say that the Japanese don't do it my way. They do it their way and it worked, but they have never reached the level of visual creativity that we achieve when we work with clients. Do you mind explaining they, that, Gwendolyn? That'd be great to explain because you're, you're then explaining from the West and really more that, uh, that side, if you don't mind covering that. Right. I'm not sure if I'm going to hit the mark with uh, the following remarks, but tell me if I don't. So the misunderstanding about 5S, and this is perhaps going back too far. I don't want to go back that far. I don't want to go back to what's in the egg before the chicken crossed the street. Um, the Japanese have an array of tools. This is in the 1980s, and it continues to this day. An array of tools for employee engagement. 5S is not one of them. 5S is a compliance tool. And it's because Taichi Ono said he, he, he was trying to resurrect a company that had been bombed out of existence along with a country that was devastated. The truth of what went on in Hiroshima and Nagasaki is coming out even this year. I don't know if you, you stayed abreast of it, but a lot of that was masked by our government because it was so horrific. The Japanese yeah. paid a price. Of course, we paid a price when we engaged in war with them, but the Japanese paid a price. But anyway, Taichi Ono is there. He's got Toyota. They're making cars. He's got to get the economy back, his share. And he notices a kind of nervousness around the people who are doing assembly in his plant. And he goes over and he makes a few inquiries. What's going on? You seem to have stopped working. Oh, well, you know, I'm tripping over this. Or I just feel like that, that thing that's hanging off of the ceiling might come down and hit me on the head. And, and he said, oh, people are being distracted from doing good work on time, quality work, because they feel unsafe. I better make them feel safe. How do I make them feel safe in this ruin of a factory? Well, I have to clear out the clutter and I have to organize what's left and, you know, lines and labels will help. And it became compliance for Ono. It was not a creative outlet. It's not that he rejected that, but he saw what I need to do is give people a safe environment and it's not a choice. Yeah. So we're all going to do it. Hmm? Yeah, 
It was insightful yeah. hearing the safety link too. Yes, yes. And then came, actually quality came uh, next. And then of course, uh, lead time cost. So th that was extrapolated. That was somewhere in the, that was the 1950s when 5S came along. It evolved over the 19, well, over the, the decades. It came to us in the 1980s, so it was pretty mature and it became elaborated. It was kind of combined with quality circles and getting people excited about compliance and giving them a reward and a, and a recognition for complying. But they had an array of other devices. They had Tayen, the Japanese suggestion system, which was a way for operators to simply see, solve, and in most case, cases, implement. There's much to be said about that. that I, I did that in the 1980s as well. They had quality circles. They had kata, which is a coaching mechanism in order to cultivate a personal relationship with people and help them, what? Help them think. It was Ono who said, people don't come to Toyota to work. They come to think. Now think about that. What would it be like if you said as a CEO, you know what, you know what we're going to be known for? We're going to be known for people coming to my plant or my corporation because they want to think, let's get busy. We've got to figure out how to do that. And that's why I call the process in work that makes sense and every aspect of my work, visual thinking, because if we implement a system of thinking, We've already built in our legacy, our sustainability, and we've changed the lives of ourselves and the people who have learned to think. Many, many operators to this day don't have an education that puts a premium on thinking. It's not even part of the conversation, but in fact, it's extremely enjoyable. As Woody Allen said, my second favorite organ is my mind. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, it, it is enjoyable. Go ahead, and, please. And how powerful is that? That one statement of, we want an organization of people who think, or you yes. create that, you have a continuous improvement culture. You also have a highly competitive culture. But people, I have a lot of complaints about the way that improvement has come to the West. I have complaints about what has been marketed, what has been emphasized, and what has been overlooked. Another emblem, which is part of my array of here are some visions for you, is people come to work to be heroes. People actually come to work to make a contribution. And if they don't make a contribution, they're not satisfied. And if they don't make a contribution because you don't give them an opportunity to make a contribution, you're missing a big opportunity. So, you know, the complaint side of that little uh, blurb is we want people to enter a room, give them a problem, and say, okay, let's brainstorm, let's solve it. That's not thinking. That's called brainstorming. That's not thinking. That's imagination, and that's also the decision to talk in front of a group. I may have a solution, but I may be terrified. It's not grooming the mind. So getting back to 5S, I found myself 
and I can say a few more things. I can say a lot of things about the Japanese, but the Japanese did not depend on 5S as an employee engagement event. And you, when you think about it, you, it's so clear that 5S is about compliance because the rules are so strict. There's no room for making stuff up. Yeah, creativity, when, as you call it. Yes, creativity, or, or even uh, more gently put, contribution. My contribution is that I obey. I follow the rules. And we, there's been massive amount of research and experience and just tribal knowledge, native knowledge, about uh, getting people to contribute. So I became very interested. I'm committed. If commitment came up, it came up in this way, Brad. I became very interested in treating every operator as though they were in an engineering course. And I was very offended by all of the cutesy kitty things that came over from Japan. You know, Hello Kitty, or these little cartoons. Well, that very well suits the Japanese culture. I mean, that really is a cultural bias. But I met a lot of big, hairy, sweaty men and women in the 1980s, and they said, you know, you can eat it. I didn't care. They didn't want it. They were insulted. Uh, they didn't like you for even presenting an opportunity that was so demeaning. That's America. I mean, in the United States, we're always ready for a fight about identity. Who do you think I am? We're always, that's the first thing. If, if we have any mantra, who do you think I am? And we have the sense of entitlement and this sense of it's beyond competitiveness. It's the absolute commitment to win no matter what. It's not even competitive because you'll be, you know, you won't be a competitor in the morning. <laughs> we got this fight. Yeah, and if it's misused, great. we get the kind of mess we have now, which is people are being pit against each other for goals that are unworthy of, the, of us as Americans. I'll tell you one thing. My traveling stopped in February, and I have sat in this country for longer than I've sat in the United States for the last 30 years. I was on a plane going out of this country at least six times a year, but I was doing it for the last four years every month. And now I'm in my country, and I, I'll tell you, it's been a really valuable experience because I'm beginning to see the mind of United States citizens. And I'm thinking, wow, we are really so cool. Let's not mess it up. So yeah. many beautiful things. Let's yeah. not mess it up. So what happened when this was in the 1990s, when I was trying to codify a different approach to 5S, I discovered it in the 80s. Then I went off on my own, started my own company, which meant I was in command of my own time. And I sat down to capture this. And I knew the first thing I had to do was create a methodology, a framework, where operators felt safe. 
where they felt in control, where they weren't fighting off their environment or someone else controlling them. I didn't say anything about control while the production line was running. It was control in the training room and in those slices of time that happened when people were implementing this new 5S. It used to be called 5S plus one, then 5S on steroids, and now work that makes sense because it's become very, very comprehensive. And I saw two things. One is that the only way an operator could feel powerful and feel the urge to change something, never himself, nobody wants to change themselves. They don't want to get better. I'm better now. Are you kidding? I'm, the, I'm Gwendolyn Galsworth. <laughs> I'm the best Gwendolyn Galsworth I know. People don't want you to change them. They want to change their environment. They want to change their level of control. And so I said, this methodology will be eye-driven. Not this eye, although it's also that because it's visual, but this eye, this identity, this person called George, called Marianne, called Brad, called Gwendolyn. You are in charge. You are not in charge when your supervisor comes up and talks to you about your production schedule or your quality or whatever, so don't get confused about that. But when I'm around and when we do our two or three hour, um, it's called visual blitz. It's not three day, just two or three hours. It's eye-driven. You decide what you want to change. We'll give you a way to prepare it. We're going to teach you visual thinking. So it has to be eye-driven. Mm? Because what I want is that eye on the inside. I want that eye that has been such a friend to me inside of me, who has been here along the way, who has joined me in this journey and been there at the, my darkest moments, this internal state. I want... I want the workplace to value that and to see when it is demonstrated that it's worth it. So we get 15 to 30% increase in productivity all the time. 15% is even in lean plants and so-called oh. lean plants. That's a lot. I mean, you give your IT for 6% increase in productivity. Yeah. But we have as an, the army of your operators who are learning how to think so that's one leverage point, the eye-driven. The second leverage point, which is completely missing from 5S, and the Japanese don't have it either. The Japanese, absolutely, they go about 5S a different way. I don't. I approve of what they're doing. It's right for their society. They don't need a revamp. It's working for them because they have all of these other um, elements. But for the West... I need to give operators a way to be scientific about visuality. I need to give them a lever. I need to give them a way to dig in and measure. And this was the second huge thing, which was floating down one night, 1994 or five, when I was writing my first book, was this idea of motion. I was looking for a lever point, and you know, everybody knows the seven deadly wastes plus, plus one. But I knew, so I looked at motion. And I said, wait a second. Motion is defined by Ono, moving without working. 
and work is defined as moving and adding value. Okay, we got that. Moving without working happens when information is missing from the work environment, when there's an information deficit. That was the third piece. So I-driven, how can I make the I powerful, give them a tool to dig in, and what is it? What is it that they're digging into? And it's a little bit cloudy here, so I'll go back in that in a moment. Is the informational landscape. To what extent does the informational landscape support the work that I'm supposed to do when I'm not in this training room? Oh, there's all these information deficits. Do I have the right tool? Is it calibrated? Do I have the right material? And whatever its corollary is in um, hospitals or in offices, there's a direct corollary. Few things that are a little different. So this, this idea that visuality was about making information physical, making information visible. Yeah, that's powerful. So really you're saying that without that visual information that people need to do their job, you're going to incur motion or waiting people not being able to do their job, that's but also... Wendland, does this go back to what you were talking about earlier, that people won't be in flow because they'll constantly be in stop-start chaos? It's exactly that. It's exactly that. Bingo, you, you got it exactly. I can't flow because I have to stop. And usually, and the stop is often a question, which a lot of supervisors believe that's my job to answer questions. But what would it be like if the questions that I answer day after day, day, day after day, and you ask day after day, what would happen if the, that, was, that was already embedded? in the physical landscape of work. Okay. And I wouldn't have to answer the question. You wouldn't have to ask it. We could flow. Gwendolyn, but do you, you want to? Mm-hmm. You, you finished, I'm Gwendolyn, sorry. sorry. Uh, I was just going to now wrap that around just for a second. Can, can I ask say, one question on that? Yes, please, please. Gwendolyn, yes. I, I love, one of my favorite books is your book, Work That Makes mm-hmm. Sense. And in that book, you have that question, which you, when you're, bringing out the I in someone and saying, you've got that question, what do you need to know? Or what do I need to know? That's right. And I've seen that in Plague Winland. I've seen seen this in an ink factory, you know, a tough ink factory, tough work environment. And I've seen the leader just take the time to go to people and go, what do you need to know? Yes, good. And please, guys, I'm going to teach you to ask that question yourself. You know, bring out the I. Gwendolyn, the things they achieved, amazing. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. That's exactly right. That's the combination of information deficit, the I, and the struggle or the motion when the information isn't in place. We become scientists of motion. We become aware of what we need to know and don't know right now in order to do our work. Thank you so much for bringing that up. It's, it's called a building block. And it is tied like this to I-driven. I-driven. What do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work? Hmm? It's I-driven. Nobody else has to approve it. I'm going to, I have to go somewhere on this. So let me just, because if we leave that question by itself, it will get us into a little bit of trouble un, uh, unwittingly. What do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work? We want to separate the I from the need to get team agreement or to get anybody's agreement. 
If you're not harming anyone else, you're not harming yourself, answer that question, ask that question and answer it through a visual device. If you've got triple shifts or four shifts or five shifts, then you're going to have to do something else. You're going to have to add a little flourish so that people are not letting their eye drive over someone else. But the adjustment is very slight. And the adjustment, I'll just say as a footnote in case people are curious, has to do with teaching tolerance. Okay, we've got five ideas. We've got five ideas and five shifts. Let's see if we can get agreement on three of those. If not, we'll do five. Everybody runs their idea for, for two weeks. See what happens. Then we switch off to the second idea. Then we switch off to the third. But you don't make any attempt at this early stage when you want that eye to come out and that eye to feel not only its power, but the beauty of its power, feeling in control of my corner of the world because what I think and say and feel matters because I want to invent, because I want to solve. Don't step on me now because I'm just coming out a little bit. I don't think there's a limb there, but I'll come out and hold on to the tree. Ah, there's a little foot. I can put my foot down. Let me have that experience. Let me feel some control over me. And it's that balance point that when you do that iteratively, Brad, will change the entire culture. And what I have seen repeatedly, that when work that makes sense is activated in this way on the operator level, the rest of the organization has to line up. The supervisors will be next. They will be looking eye-driven at their production schedule. And after a few more heartbeats, the CEO will start talking about vision and horizon and claiming that leadership. So the eye-driven is very important. You know what you do to begin with? You have a small pilot and you say, I'm gonna do it because Gwendolyn says this will work, but I'm not gonna to commit to it until I see that it works. So let me see what happens. And you said, you know, you had that experience. What do I need to know? But you gotta get educated. You, you gotta get educated to how the whole system works because what do I need to know is not methodology. It is a doorway. It's not a step-by-step. -step. You'll run out of that soon enough. You'll run out of your need to know soon enough. Then where do you go? Well, you'll stop unless you use the motion, lover as a motion. But the other thing that happens is that's only the first question. There are two. The first question gives people a sense of their own power. The second question gives them a sense of unity or relationship with others. The first is what do I need to know that I don't know in order to do, that I don't now know in order to do my work. But the second is, and listen to this one, listen to the I become we. What do I need to share? What do I need to share that other people need to know that I need to share so they can do their work? Can you hear the we in that? Yeah. And the netting of the culture, the relationship is there, and you 
with need to know you get control over your corner of the world. It's a small corner. And with the need to share, it's how may I help you? All of a sudden you have leaders. You have every operator who's a leader. And you cannot be a leader unless you know the strength of your eye. The only time we run into problems with that where we just flip it is when we have a deep veterans veteran operators who've been doing this work for 17 years, they will never tell you what they need to know because they don't need to know anything. Yeah. So they become mentors and you flip the questions. Okay, you work on what do you need to share? What do you know in all your brilliance of 17, 25 years, 37 years? What was his name? John Friend at uh, Plant 19, GM Plant uh, 19, Delco in... Uh, the 1990s. He was working there for 57 years. <laughs> what does that mean? Wow. He didn't need to know anything, but he needed to share a great deal. And suddenly he comes out of himself when he thinks all that's ahead of him is retirement, fishing. All of a sudden he's being called upon to make a contribution, being respected. So I want to say that, yes, we're hitting the heart of things about how the methodology works and I don't want to blame 5S, but so much more is possible if you go back to Ono. People don't come to Toyota to work, they come to think. People who are involved with becoming scientists of motion and finding their information deficits and removing or dissolving their information deficits through visual devices. This is an active application of a formulaic thinking. It's formulaic. And you do that iteratively. And you begin by establishing the visual where, which is the big question that operators have. Where is this and where is that and where is this? Talk about us, no sense of control. And then you go beyond it. You start building mini systems. And then you move into more advanced visuality. You have by the time we complete visual wear, which is in, in, in the methodology module nine, you have people who know how to think and know how to lead and know what it means to be held accountable and like it. It's a yeah. revolution in yeah. operators. You don't say, you, you, you should hold yourself accountable. They do, and mm. they hold you accountable too. Gwendolyn, <laughs> you've, brought it all, you've brought it all together so beautifully because you know, mm. early in our conversation, you were talking a lot about vision and flow. And then you've evolved then. And then you brought up thinking, you know, to, um, to Aciono's comment around, we want a workplace that thinks. And then you've evolved it then into those, you know, two key questions plus the other elements you explained on how you can get people in the West to think, but also think of others. Mm. And I guess through that, they're going to achieve flow. They're going to achieve a place where they know what they need to know and they can get into that state of flow and creativity. It's, they it's go, impressive. that's exactly, it's so, you said it beautifully, and, but the outcome is not flow, the outcome is unity. Yes, yes. It's just one step above. It's an order of magnitude above. And you're also, but yeah, because you're getting people to think outside their paradigm. Mm -hmm. And become informal yes. leaders. Like, I love that, that story you told about John Friend. You, you, in that one conversation, you brought out leadership in John Friend and empathy to help others. 
Yes. So I would say that it was always there and he got a chance to notice it and to say yes to it. It, you know, it, it, that's, that's the premise. The premise is that power within this strength that we have within ourselves is what God gave us. If you don't believe in God, then just recognize something else and see it in your children and see it in the person you admire the most, whoever that may be. There's a power inside of us that it may be unnameable, but is nevertheless present and demonstrates itself in what we call our life again and again. And that power is either given or it is simply there. It doesn't have to, if that's not your belief system, it's fine. How do you harness it? And why should I go through life or work and not feel it? Why should I only feel it when I leave work and go to church or, or go on my bowling team? Why shouldn't I feel that goodness? Because when I feel it, I feel safe. When I feel it, I feel connected. When I feel it, I can face my life. It's taught everywhere. And I'm just saying, it's taught everywhere. There are so many forms of this in the world. And I'm saying, why not also the workplace? It is a perfect environment. Culture, the, the cultural shift is so underestimated of, of what is possible. It isn't simply getting along and having no conflict and being friendly. It has to do with finding the power within and using it and refining that. We are in the United States, I'm not sure about Australia, but in the United States, we have a certain allergy to power and an ineluctable magnetism. We want it, but it feels a little greedy or it's a, it might be misunderstood. And so with our leaders, we have so many leaders who have been schooled in being politically correct. I was talking to one the other day and I thought, oh my God, get my handkerchief out. This is a big strapping experienced highly skilled, highly recognized executive leader. And he was talking to me with pain. And, and I'm thinking, why is he doing this? Because it feels more comfortable to him than being direct and saying, this is what I want. I mean, it wasn't vic the victim thing, but it sure was a step down from the executive leader that he was hired to be. I hope that we have a conversation about, you know, I have endless words in me. This is just, I like the words, I like the concepts, and I love the invitation to speak. And I thank you so much, Brad, for creating this opportunity for me to speak and for the wonderful gift that you've exhibited here, which is to align with my, with my world and to bring that forth in me with permission and with support. It's, a, it's just an extraordinary opportunity for me to speak in the flow of this relationship that we have, you and me. Yeah. It's, it's really oh, terrific. Gwendolyn, the, so I've much. gained so much from our conversation today, and I know <laughs> others will. It's just been amazing. And I will take you up. If you're willing to come back on the show, I'll, there are so many other conversations we can have. But one question I've got, Gwendolyn, and I'll, I'll ask this one now with this show, and I've got another one to ask with the next show. Oh, but 
you, you've provided so much, gained so much knowledge throughout your career and have such an amazing place to help people achieve flow and creativity and bring out, be empowered and bring out that, that spirit in everyone, get everyone to think and have everyone enabled to think. But what have, what have you learned recently mm. that you didn't know before? What's been a recent insight for you? Well, I can't make this answer fit what we've already talked about. So it's not. That, that doesn't matter at all. I don't put a ribbon on anything. But I have, on two sides, I have over the, since March the 7th, which happened to have been my birthday, since the first week in March, to even as recently as last evening, been amazed at the power of solitude. Now, I don't, for lots of reasons, I don't have anywhere else, anyone else in this space. I don't have my darling cat, Merlin, because he decided to leave, that rascal. Mm. And I don't have a, a, a male partner right now. And my brother lives about 15 minutes away, and he can't come visit me because his wife has a, a compromised immune system, and he, you know, whatever. So I'm really alone here. I have birds on my balcony. And what is happening in me is something. I've been meditating forever, for longer than you've been alive. I've spent a lot of time in meditation but what I'm getting here in my, in my solitude is a connection with myself that I didn't even know was missing. And it's just quiet, and it's observational, and it has enough time for me to understand what's going on, because I'm now seeing patterns that's not being interrupted by getting on a plane or having to organize something for a client. I follow my own pace and I find it just such a gift. And what's happening for me is that I find myself becoming actually a person I can be with. I mean, I'm changing now over these last months it's not that I've discovered that I'm a person that I can be with. I'm becoming a person that I can be with. And I'm becoming much, I mean, gentler in a way that's very, uh, it's strong, but it's, it's just an understanding. I'm not going to say of life itself because that's not exactly it. And this is just a treasure because I have enough interaction not to feel like a hermit but I have enough quiet that uh, it's, it's introspection uh, that I find so interesting. So I'm learning, and, I've, and it's changing me. And I feel, you know, I feel the privilege of that. I recognize that other people have children in their house that they have to teach and or they go out every day and work and put their lives on the line to support my life. And I, I'm, I have to also say I'm a little bit unprepared for giving you a good 
a, a good balanced answer. But I appreciate them as being part of my life as well. It's ex- yeah. extraordinary. I mean, it. You talked about when when we we're getting ready for this call, how the uh, climate is getting a rest. I'm getting a rest, yeah. and I'm so grateful for it. I don't know if I can take another year of it, but I haven't run out of interest. What a treasure to be with yourself, and to see see everything and to not reject it because I'm going to be here again tomorrow. I can't run away from it. I, you know, and I don't do drugs and I ran out of red wine. <laughs> I do have to get some more red wine. Is that, yeah, that's nice. I hope that, that gave yeah, you some well, kind it of sounds like you've of- really been given the space to think and really retrospectively think, but also think in relation to your vision and future. It, it seems yes. to connect to our conversation is because you need to have that space and ability to think also, don't you? If you're just in the rut race or you're just an operator on the line, go, 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 go all the time, you don't have the chance to think. I, I really believe that, yes, I, to feel this internal flow. I believe that the world is changing. And I believe that almost everyone has had the experience, perhaps not pro- prolonged, the thing that I regret the most is the amount of fear that this period has triggered in us. And I certainly, in, in March, April, and May, I was a basket case. But in fact, I didn't burn up and, and the world didn't end. And so I can transition into, oh, it seems to be bad, but not destructive yet. Who am I? Who am I now? Yeah, so I, 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 I like it very, very much. And look at I found you. Yeah. You were out there all this time. Oh, I appreciate I know that. the connection, Gwendolyn. I really appreciate the conversation too. The, the knowledge you've shared has been amazing. And I know people are going to gain so much. I can see mm-hmm. the application as we've been talking through any type of industry, any type of enterprise. You know, those yes. simple questions to help people bring out their creativity to think to be able to have that empowerment and ownership over their world and then to be able to create and help achieve more flow. It's been an amazing conversation. Gwendolyn, how can people reach out to you at Thanks. this time? Well, my website is visualworkplace.com, not Visual Workplace Inc. They make um, 5S products and stuff like that. They're, they're friends. They do good work, but I'm Visual Workplace workplace.com and folks can just contact me through my first name Gwendolyn at visualworkplace.com go to our website there's phone numbers and there's every page has a way to contact us so uh, be in touch and what I would love so that's visualworkplace.com Gwendolyn at visualworkplace.com what I would love is if people are interested in other topics that they contact you and say you know just just say what they'd like to hear. If you give me the opportunity to come back again, then perhaps your listeners can name the topic and it will be useful to them. Yeah, that's great. I'll tell you what I really, can I tell you what I really, really want? What I'd really love in this time of isolation, virtual connection, I would love for a group of companies that can be anywhere in the world to start some projects, to not just use 
what do I need to know? What do I need to share? But to actually start some projects and create a kind of virtual consortium so that we can do that good work together. And I'm happy to dedicate myself to that if companies want to actually do this. Well, they can do it through you. You know, they can do it through your enterprise excellence uh, umbrella. But I, I, uh, I don't want to be idle. I may have a, a love of solitude, but I don't want to be idle. I think and, that's a great thing. Yes. Thank you so much, Brad. This has just been wonderful for me. Uh, same, Gwendolyn. I knew, <laughs> I knew it was going to be an amazing conversation, and it has been. And thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. The key takeaways for me from this episode were firstly, the benefit of developing a strong sense of connection to your eye, knowing who you are, what your natural tendencies are, connecting with your power, but going deeper than that. How do you express yourself when you're in a state of flow? How can you help yourself experience that sense of flow? Secondly, the importance of developing your thinking skills. Thinking brings belief in your abilities. A reliance upon yourself develops confidence in being able to make the most of situations that are presented. Thinkers learn from their experience and will often improve upon their interactions. Finally, focusing on helping others to learn and think. This will foster nurturing and supportive relationships, communication and culture. You'll help others become independent, know their power and how to refine it. Thank you, Gwendolyn, for giving us such a rich conversation. I look forward to getting you back on the show again in the future. Bye for now.